Welcome to the Sidemore Podcast. My name is Michael Shia, and today we're going to talk about air pollution in Baltimore. I'm here today with my colleagues, Stephen and Varun. Uh, hey, I'm Stephen Jadjian. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. Hey, guys. For the listeners, my name is Varun Chakshi. So, Varun, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we are going to talk about air pollution in Baltimore, how trash incinerators continue to contribute to the problem, and its impact on human health. I started to think more about pollution in Baltimore when the COP26 climate meeting was happening last year. At the time, I had been driving a lot down to Howard County, and every time I come back to the city, I've noticed this big chimney that says Baltimore. It sort of almost represents that we are entering the city. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, I live in South Baltimore, actually, and I've seen that chimney quite a bit. Um, but I wouldn't say it's the most beautiful welcome to the city sign that I've ever seen. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I actually like was talking to someone else and I recently learned that it's part of a trash incinerator. And like, it's crazy to me that they're just burning trash right here in the city. Oh, wow. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure I knew that. So it's, it's still operational. Um, isn't that like bad for the environment? Yeah, it seems like to me that they're still going, which I mean, honestly confused me since at some point I thought they were supposed to be shut down um, like a year or so ago. So I'm kind of curious, actually, Varun, do you know what happened there and why it's still running? I do not have great news there, but I promise a silver lining. So to answer that question, I spoke with Dante Swinton, a local environmental justice researcher and advocate. The organization he worked for played an important role in passing the Baltimore Clean Air Act that would push the city to ensure that these structures are not excessively polluting the air. I'm Dante Swinton. I work with the uh, uh, Clean Air Baltimore Coalition. Mr. Swinton, the organization you worked for, Clean Air Baltimore, advocated for getting the Baltimore Clean Air Act passed in 2019. What was the main goal of the act and what was to happen to these trash incinerators according to the act? Yeah, absolutely. So the main goal uh, uh, was to require that the city's uh, trash incinerator, largest air polluter uh, here, uh, which contributes uh, about 38% of the industrial point source pollution in the city, um, to install updated pollution controls and real-time monitoring uh, of at least two dozen pollutants. Right now, uh, the facility only gets tested once a year for basically a six-hour stack test. Um, and they project out what uh, the uh, facility is probably emitting uh, for the rest of the year uh, for those 364 days and 18 hours that it's not being tested uh, under that uh, condition. And they essentially run their tests. They know when the test is coming. Uh, they can choose which of the three boilers that they test. And so it's very much an open book situation for them. And we did not like that, of course. Uh, so we wanted to uh, require that they have more frequent uh monitoring of those toxic pollutants as well as uh have, again having those updated pollution controls because uh the controls that they currently have are not the most uh modern uh to minimize pollution so uh it incorporated both the trash incinerator and the medical waste incinerator which is the largest in the country uh which is down in curtis bay uh the incinerators down in westport and trash incinerators down in westport and uh and so, yeah, we we had a, a lot of support for it. Uh, we kept getting more and more folks behind it over time. Uh, the council was very in favor of it. The mayor ultimately signed it, as you said. 
uh, than Mayor Catherine Pugh. Oh, so yeah, that, that sounds great. So that should mean that that's the end for the incinerators in close sight if they're not able to follow these stringent standards. Is that right? You're right in saying that, but eventually wrong. This is because We Liberator Baltimore, the company that runs these incinerators, was successfully able to challenge this act in court. Oh, wait. So like, like, on what basis did that happen? Simply on the basis that the regulations regarding the pollutants allowed to be released in the air are stricter than that is postulated by the state and the federal acts. Unfortunately, they won the case. The city didn't think they could fight this further, so they signed a deal with the company granting it an extension for 10 years in 2020. However, one positive out of all this was they were required to cut the levels of toxic waste released in air by 50% and that there will be an increase in number of tests per year. Adding to these positives, the contract allows Baltimore City to back out of the deal whenever they want without getting sued. Ah, uh, I see. So, so there's some positives. I'm curious, like, it seems like with an incinerator, it's just going to continue burning trash. Like, do we have to use them? Are there situations where, like, cities are required to use these incinerators? Oh, yeah. Our neighbors, Baltimore County, are required to send at least 215,000 tons of waste every year to re-liberator incinerators uh, that are operating in our city. Otherwise, they can be fined by the company. This is called a put-or-pay contract. Luckily, Baltimore City does not have this bind. Oh, wow. That's, that's actually crazy to me. It's like almost the definition of a toxic relationship. <laughs> um, but so 215,000 tons seems like, you know, it's a really big number, but can we make sense of how much this is and what kind of impact it's having uh, in terms of pollution? Good question, Stephen. I was actually surprised to hear that shutting down the incinerators is actually the low hanging fruit in this fight against air pollution. They are the major source of pollution in the city, contributing over 36% of the industrial air pollution. Here is what Mr. Swinton had to say. The incinerator puts out enough CO2 to equal over 141,000 uh, typical sedans on the road every year, um, which is crazy. And puts out enough sulfur dioxide pollution to equal 1.7 million cars. So, um, so you know, we we try to make sure that we uh, take that data and put it into a digestible format that people can understand. Uh, so we have little graphs that talk about that uh, when it comes to car pollution versus the incinerator, and they try to minimize their impact because yeah, there certainly is a lot of uh, uh, pollution from transit um, sources. However. That's not to say that they are just a drop in the bucket. They do have an impact and any impact is, is very key. So um, yeah, we, we try to make sure that any data that's out there about the impacts of these, these pollutants is, is, is uh, available. If we look at it from a nationwide uh, perspective first, uh, the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America puts together a 100 asthma capitals uh, report every year, typically. And this most recent year, I believe they released it uh, either earlier this year or late last year, um, Baltimore ranked as the second worst place to live with asthma. And that takes into account asthma prevalence, uh, number of overall asthma cases and, uh, and uh, well, actually emergency visits and number of deaths from asthma. 
And I believe only one, like I said, only one city beats it. Um, I want to say it's one in Pennsylvania, uh, but um, nevertheless, it's a good report to look at. And uh, that's very concerning um, to, to see us still in that, that area. We're always toward the top of that 100 list. So to be second is awful. Uh, like I said, we, we've used British Medical Journal uh, information. Um, numerous studies have come out uh, about the impacts of, of PM 2.5, uh, NOx, uh, SO2 and the like. The UN certainly releases a number of them um, when it comes to potential impacts on the brain um, and potentially impacts uh, when it comes to uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, uh, breaking down the blood-brain barrier uh, with, I believe, PM 2.5 pollution over time. Uh, so, so, yeah, there are a lot of components to consider and we try to get them uh, in a way, in a format that people understand. So, um, happy to keep doing that where, wherever I can. Oh, that was, that was really interesting. So yeah, he said it's, you know, it's important to put the numbers, uh, the pollution numbers in terms that people can understand or visualize. So like the incinerators produce X amount of CO2, but this is equivalent to like 140,000 sedan cars. Um, and in terms of the impact that it's potentially having, I was pretty shocked that Baltimore is second in the list of asthma capitals in the US. So things like the incinerators and also the really bad traffic that we have in this city um, and the lack of reliable public transit are bringing these like real health consequences um, and increasing people's risk of you know respiratory conditions like heart um, asthma and then stroke and heart disease. Um, but the really interesting thing to me that he said was, and I think it surprised me a little bit, was that this pollution can even affect our mental health. Yeah, that's, that's less intuitive to me as well. Um, and just as a quick aside, by the way, to all the listeners, uh, we just spoke a little bit about the respiratory effects of asthma and um, public transit in the city and how that has interplays with um, pollution. So if you want to learn more about that, we actually have a few previous episodes uh, from this year on the Sidemar podcast. So we'll write a link to those in the notes. Um, but just as an aside, just want to put a little self-promotion in there um, and now back to the conversation. I was stunned to hear that as well, but at the same time intrigued. Being a neuroscientist, I had some idea that air pollution can have effects on mental health, but had not come up upon any such research. So I contacted a researcher at Lieber Institute here in Baltimore, uh, who is an expert in this field, Dr. Tan. I'm Dr. Haoyang Tan. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist by training. I'm a lead investigator at the uh, Lieber Institute for Brain Development. Dr. Tan, what made your group study the effects of mental health rather than well-known respiratory or cardiac effects? Yeah. Um, you know, um, we were sort of um, motivated by um, a lot of emerging uh, studies uh, on you know, large populations that would suggest that uh, people who are exposed to relatively higher uh, particulate matter air pollution uh, tends to have more hospitalizations for depression, more hospitalizations for mental health problems. Now, um, these are quite suggestive of some links perhaps to um, mental uh, conditions, but it could also be that um, people who you know, live in 
more disadvantaged places, uh, socioeconomically more disadvantaged, they also tend to be exposed to more air pollution. So it's less clear whether air pollution directly would affect um, the brain and would directly affect brain processes that give rise to some of these neuropsychiatric disorders, which is why we then you know, looked uh, you know, in using uh, fairly advanced uh, MRI technologies in the lab to directly study uh, these brain functions uh, and the effects of relatively high exposures to air pollution in this particular study. Point well made. Rational is well set up for the study. What were the main findings of the study? How does air pollution affect mental health? Yeah, I think the main message is that, um, you know, the deleterious effects of air pollution um, is not uh, just on the heart and the lungs, uh, important as that may be, obviously, but that um, air pollution also directly impacts on brain function and directly impacts on brain function related to uh, psychiatric disease. And, and another important piece uh, that we have found was that if you have genetic risk associated with some of these neuropsychiatric disorders, the exposures to air pollution magnifies the impact of these genes, uh, genetic risk factors uh, on brain and would multiply uh, to impact upon much higher risk for these uh, mental health conditions, in particular depression, as we've studied in this uh, uh, study, as we've studied over here. On an episode of Freakonomics Radio, I had heard about a study that links kids living with high air pollution to lower test scores. Are the young more vulnerable? Uh, we know that younger you know, younger people, especially you know, babies or even pregnant during pregnancy, these are very vulnerable periods. These are periods of time when the brain is very actively uh, developing. And in this context, um, the impact of air pollution and other environmental insults are likely to be magnified in this context. So certainly, you know, prenatal life, uh, early life would be more, much more vulnerable, but also in later life as well. And that's the other period of, of, of development where there are a lot of vulnerabilities. So perhaps at the two, uh, two, two ends, uh, we have some evidence that that might, um, you know, uh, be the more vulnerable periods uh, to these environmental stressors. Okay, so Dr. Tan's research definitely supports this idea that areas with more pollution don't just see these problems with respiratory uh, and, and cardiac conditions, but also mental health. Um, but he also said that, you know, areas with higher rates of mental illness also tend to be more socioeconomically disadvantaged. So, and we know, you know, there's other research, I'm sure, that shows that has its own impacts on um, rates of health problems. So all these things seem to be kind of intertwined. And I think what he was saying, they've done some research to try and pull those things apart. And they've shown that there really is like 
this direct effect of pollution on mental health, probably because it's amplifying, you know, people who have genetics that put them at risk of mental health conditions and then are living in, you know, polluted areas, um, uh, ending up with mental health problems. Um, but I do have a question about sort of geography because I know, so Dr. Tan's work was done in Beijing and I've been to Beijing, I think a few years ago now. And I remember like the smog from pollution is really as bad as some people say it is. Um, and so, although we've talked about how pollution in Baltimore can be bad, uh, how well do these findings from Dr. Tan's research translate to a city like Baltimore? He said Baltimore fortunately experiences significantly lower levels of air pollution than the air in Beijing. At the time when the study was done, Beijing had such high levels that it was in our daily newsfeed all the way here in America. This was in a way perfect for them because these high levels of pollution in Beijing made sure everyone was equally affected by air pollution. Hence, it allowed them to study the effects of air pollution on mental health independent of socioeconomic differences. But to contextualize to this to Baltimore in their study, they had individuals exposed to low levels of air pollution and they observed that these adverse effects unfortunately extended to them as well. Additionally, even though average levels of pollutant might be way lower than the study, depending on where you live and the time of the year, you might be exposed to harmful level of pollutants. Uh, okay, that's that's really helpful to clarify. So it seems like between the conversations that you've had, Varun, with um, uh, Mr. Swinton and, and Dr. Tan, we've heard a lot about the importance of air quality today. And I'm curious, like, is there any hope to be had? And do the experts that you spoke to think that we could do anything about it here in Baltimore? I asked Mr. Swinton, what can the residents do now since the incinerators are here to stay? It seems like the best way to tackle this issue is to stop producing such waste. Absolutely. So, um, as I mentioned, there's a, there's a big uh, deficit of education around what uh, could be reused, uh, recycled compost. The city has failed for so many years of actually moving uh, the needle on education around reuse. Uh, because of its dependency on the trash incinerator. It's a very classist and quite honestly racist uh, thing that's been perpetuated uh, for decades now. Um, no matter the representation that happens to be in office, they've kept it there. They've chosen to think that that's the only way we can do it. And it's put us in this position where we're behind so many cities. Um, but uh, when it comes to education on this, uh, not only are those recycling carts uh, important to have and making sure people understand what needs to go in there, we also need to um, make sure that uh, people are aware of the city's pilot about composting. Uh, they can drop off their organics in a few different spots, including some of the farmer's markets. Um, so that way uh, the organics stay out of the waste stream too. And then hopefully we ultimately uh, have our own composting facility. Uh, some of the great work that's being done down in Curtis Bay is a push to have a resource recovery park of sorts. And so not only would it be that there'd be space for composting organics, but there'd also be space for reusing and, and reclaiming other materials that could be recycled and the like. Um, and, and so there's a lot of great work going on there. But uh, I also would encourage people to speak to their uh, the leadership, speak to Mayor Scott, 
uh, speak to DPW uh, folks like the new DPW directors from Oakland, uh, a city that is a little more ahead of where Baltimore should have been already when it comes to managing its waste in a more sustainable fashion. Um, that Oakland does not impen- depend on an incinerator, unlike us. Um, but there are a lot of people that have been left over from previous administrations that very much still believe we need the incinerator. So we need more and more people to speak to those legislators, those leaders, uh, those bureaucrats uh, about the need to move towards zero waste and actually commit to uh, the solid waste infrastructure that would replace the incinerator uh, in short order. Um, We also need for folks to challenge the institutions, to challenge Hopkins, to challenge Loyola, to challenge uh, UNB, University of Baltimore, my alma mater, um, to move in a direction of zero waste because they are the ones that are also contributing this material to the incinerator. And the more institutions that uh, push back against this very archaic frame of mind of cradle to grave waste management, uh, the more uh, movement the city will have on on moving towards zero waste. So I think those are a few ways to to engage uh, in the matter. And um, yeah. Yeah, so it seemed like he said, you know, there are a couple of things we can do. And one, like you said, is to just reduce the amount of trash we create in the first place. So increasing opportunities for things like recycling and composting, he mentioned. Um, I think, you know, recycling has improved in Baltimore recently, but there's a lot of places in the city and elsewhere that don't do it consistently. Um, And then there's always this question of like how much of what you put in recycling actually gets recycled. Um, And then the other thing I think he talked about was how we need to look at, you know, things that can't be recycled or composted, what we're doing with that solid waste. Um, So I'm guessing things like landfill and um, other things that, you know, avoid burning it in incinerators. Um, But that's obviously going to take all this this political will um, that he talked about and trying to push institutions to come up with better ways um, and more sustainable products. So in the meantime, is there anything we can do um, to reduce or avoid some of the harmful health effects of all this pollution? Yeah, on the short scale, one thing we can do is to control the effects of high air pollution on our health. Dr. Tan suggested using technological advancements to identify people at high risk and try to reduce exposure to polluted air in various ways. Here is what he said in detail. You know, that's a very important question. Many facets uh, to it. Um, and um, so, well, you know, if we can, the simple advice, of course, would be, you know, try to minimize your exposure uh, to pollutants. Uh, sometimes the, the, the signs are obvious uh, that, you know, Pollution is worse on certain days, certain contexts, traffic. Try to minimize uh, your exposures. And especially, based on our study, especially if you have a personal history or family history of some of these neuropsychiatric disorders, um, so if you can. We, of course, know that um, you know, not everybody is privileged enough to live in, in the most... Uh, uh, least polluted environments. And so, you know, in addition to trying to minimize exposures, 
uh, you know, people can try if they can uh, to have some air filtration uh, devices or better um, heating and cooling devices at home if they can. Uh, if they can, you know, travel uh, less uh, during you know, peak hours if they can. Um, but that also speaks to, um, of course, you know, the need for um, you know, the continued need to um, control uh, these air pollution. Um, you know, 90% of the world's population, according to WHO, uh, is exposed to uh, unhealthy levels of uh, air quality. And so, you know, a lot of work definitely needs to be done, you know, maybe on the legislative side, but also a lot on technology side. Um, you know, what do we do to minimize um, our dependence on, uh, you know, fossil fuels? Uh, what, what can we do to make cars and trucks, you know, and industries less polluting? And there's a lot of it on the technology side uh, in terms of the industries, transportation, but also on the um, health side, um, you know, I mentioned, uh, we talked a little bit about perhaps um, using um, um, apps and other uh, technology, information technology uh, calculations to predict when uh, certain exposures may be high and when to perhaps avoid certain things um, that could also um, be in the future um, much better understanding of um, how to identify people at high risk. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about you know, identifying people based on genetics, perhaps, um, and that could give us some clues, uh, further clues um, to identify people at high risk, how do we protect them, um, are there, um, uh, we've identified some brain inflammation uh, molecules uh, that may be involved, that may be treatments perhaps that could be devised to help people who are vulnerable. Um, these could also give us new clues uh, to reverse the effects of um, you know, people who have been exposed and are depressed, for example, and new treatments uh, perhaps. And so uh, the, the science is, is, is um, uh, evolving and, and it, I hope it, it gives, gives us some hope you know, that uh, we can, uh, together with you know, a bunch of all these other uh, strategies, uh, you know, legislative to technological, uh, to health, to science, to biomedicine, and we can uh, leverage on this information to, to ultimately improve on um, these health outcomes for everybody. Okay, so it sounds like, you know, it seems simple, we can minimize the impact of pollution on our health just by limiting our exposure to this pollution. Um, so even though we live in the city. There are, you know, we know that pollution can be worse on some days or times of the year, um, and in certain parts of the city. Um, but Dr. Tan notes that, of course, not everyone has the luxury to, you know, choose where they live to avoid pollution or avoid uh, rush hour traffic. Um, and as we heard about earlier and in our previous transit episode, a lot of the areas with higher air pollution and lower quality of air are also more socioeconomically disadvantaged. So I think, I guess that what the future holds is like there needs to be this emphasis on new technologies and legislation to deal with uh, pollution at the source and also 
help to improve health outcomes for everybody, but particularly the, the people living in these high pollution areas and those who have these risk factors that might you know, predispose them to health problems from pollution. Yeah, thanks, Varun and Stephen, for this really interesting conversation. I'm glad uh, we got to talk about it today. Um, I also want to thank our experts, Dr. Hao Yang Tan and Mr. Dante Swinton, whose valuable time and effort made this episode possible. This episode was produced and edited by Varun with the help of myself and Stephen. Uh, thanks to Camille, Jamie, and Stephen for publicity and marketing. And last but not least, we want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. Please check out our show notes. And if you have any questions about the material we talked about or want us to talk to experts about a topic of your interest, you can reach out to us at sidemore.podcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at P. You can also find this episode and all of our previous episodes on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.